21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Hi, I'm Lisa Gable. I've served presidents and governors, counseled corporate CEOs, and led coalitions and nonprofits. There's one common thread throughout my tenure with the organizations and the administrations I've served, the need for a turnaround. I'm consistently hired to construct and carry out turnarounds and have written a book on how to make them happen smoothly and successfully with discipline and diplomacy. In my new book, aptly titled The Turnaround, I take you through a battle-tested process which includes visualizing the future, breaking down the present, creating a path to the future, and executing with speed, confidence, agility, and heart. The turnaround is for anyone destined to lead people out of a bad situation to a better place. In my view, the word turnaround doesn't connote negativity because I've seen astounding results. Whether you need to simply up-level a struggling team, respond to new market forces, navigate a crisis, or lead a wholesale leadership change, the biggest challenge is to recognize the need and act upon it. This book is going to help you do just that. Hi, my name is Sandra Miley. I'm Vice President and General Manager of FAIR Mobile Experiences. We are currently standing up two products, a FAIR Marketplace and the FAIR Living app, and we use data-driven decision-making to inform our decisions. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you today. My name is Jim Lutzweiler, and I'm currently the Senior Vice President of Strategic Programs at FAIR. Essentially what that means is I have the pleasure of leading a team uh, whose responsibility it is to make sure uh, that we're able to bring organizational initiatives to life. And certainly the access to healthcare and our diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, priorities at FAIR are uh, top of the list uh, among those activities that, uh, that we have the pleasure of leading. So my journey's been a non-obvious one, to quote my friend Rohit, which is that I started my career at 19 in the Reagan administration and worked at the White House in the Defense Department. In fact, I arrived at the White House just a few months before Gorbachev made that historic visit with Ronald Reagan. I did my master's degree focused on dual-use technologies, technologies that have military use and commercial use. While I was at the White House, I had an opportunity to recruit a woman by the name of Barbara Barrett to be deputy administrator of the FAA. Turns out that later she would become a U.S. ambassador and also secretary of the Air Force. But at that time, she had just married Craig Barrett, who was senior vice president of Intel Corporation. So as Ronald Reagan was leaving office, I asked to talk with Craig, spoke to him about the work that I had done on dual use technology and he offered me a job at Intel Corporation, a company that was only at $1.4 billion at that time. I moved to Arizona to work for Craig, spent some time in Taiwan studying Chinese, and when Craig was made Chief Operating Officer and Heir Apparent of Intel, I was off to the races and joined him in California where I was his troubleshooter. So that's where I got my first experience with turnarounds. Basically what I've done throughout my career is I've worked for CEOs and billionaires helping them turn around very important areas of interest to them, something that was very important to them. For example, Craig was focused on K through 12 uh, education in the United States. 
And what he really wanted to do is make sure that there would be a, a pathway for kids to come work at Intel someday. Now, this was before people had CSR programs. This was in the late 1990s. Late, I'm sorry, this was in the late 1980s. And we developed what would be some of the first uh, joint ventures with school districts, with companies, to make sure technology was integrated into the schools and ensure that we actually had a pipeline in the state of Arizona, in the state of New Mexico, to have kids that someday could work at Intel Corporation and at other high-tech companies. I then went on to start my own business, and I was working for companies at that time period where they were moving from business to business to communication to business to consumer communication. And so the big companies I joined were companies like Oracle that were clients of mine, Quantum Computers and Cadence. And we were focused on how do you take this very complex technology and introduce it into a consumer population so they actually understand the value of what they're buying. But at the same time, I was also asked by George W. Bush and actually sworn in by Bill Clinton's team to serve as the vice chair of the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. That was a secondary activity I was doing while I was running my business full time. At that stage of the game, there had been the largest sexual harassment situation in the U.S. military. It was called tailhook for those of us who are, are old enough to remember. And so I was brought in as vice chairman to work with the Clinton administration in a bipartisan fashion and visited 52 military bases around the world. What we wanted to make sure is that we elevated the voice of every single soldier and sailor in the conversation. And we gave great care to ensuring that all different viewpoints were represented. Our number one goal was to support our military families and our military personnel, men and women. And that's what we did. And we actually used a process created by the Baldridge Committee on our behalf. I had gone to them and said, we need some process that's gonna enable us to have the right conversations, track the issues that are most important and ensure that the Clinton administration had the information they needed to ensure that they were setting a community in an environment where military personnel could be successful, no matter their sex. We saw women entering into uh, flying airplanes, combat airplanes and combat missions. We saw women going onto ships for the first time. So I've seen it all. I've seen those moments where you have to understand that there's been a crisis, you react to the crisis, but you don't burn the whole place down. You make sure that you're supporting everybody, that you're rebuilding from a standpoint of making a definite path forward for all the people involved. And I use those skills basically throughout my life. Later, I was recruited to be the first U.S. ambassador, first female U.S. ambassador to a World's Fair. Now, most people think, well, that sounds really nice. And in fact, it's kind of like being the ambassador to Disney World. To some degree, it's almost as if they just took Epcot and they put it into a diplomatic setting where people had the title of ambassador and you had 200 uh, countries that were represented. But what people didn't realize is that never in the history of the World's Fair had it ended up on budget. In fact, if you read the book, Devil in a White City, which is about a serial killer at the Chicago World's Fair, if you pay attention to the underlying story, what you'll learn is that World's Fairs are always well over budget. They are always sort of a complex issue to manage. And so I was asked a few months before the fair uh, by President Bush to come in and run our US pavilion. We were about $20 million in debt at the time. 
I raised $32 million with my excellent staff, and we opened our doors in six months and were actually voted during the time period of the fair to be twice voted as the most popular pavilion and the best run pavilion. Now, what was different about this is I brought industry to the table, and that really becomes the theme song for the rest of my life, is that we made our World's Fair engagement around two different criteria. One is we ensured that the day-to-day -day consumer, that person, that family that was coming from other places around the world, and their kids just wanted to have a happy time. Because as I said, to some degree, it's like Disney World. And we had wonderful activities, and we had a, um, we had a theater around Benjamin Franklin talking about innovation and hope, optimism, enterprise, and freedom. In fact, it was designed by the people who did uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids at Disney. And so rain came down as, as we had, and there seats got shocked. People had a wonderful experience, but upstairs we were focused on paying for our way. We were focused on engaging companies and governors and driving foreign direct investment into the United States, opening manufacturing centers, ensuring that the supply chain was moving into the United States. Why was that good? is that we were actually the only U.S. engagement in 175 years to participate in the World's Fair on budget. In fact, we were not only on budget, we were under budget. And we were recognized on the Senate floor for doing something different than other people had done. And that was ensuring that industry had a seat at the table and that we managed our funds in a manner that we were fulfilling our, our requirements for our sponsors, making sure people were entertained, but we were staying on budget. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. So because of that experience, I got recruited into another cool job. And that cool job was working for 16 food and beverage CEOs on the largest self-regulatory initiative to change the food supply and impact the rise of obesity. It was an idea that was created by Ingenui, who challenged her other industry CEOs to join her in an effort to change the products, to change the recipe of their products so that they would be more healthy, so they would have fewer calories. We had the opportunity to work with Michelle Obama. In fact, we helped launch the Let's Move activities at the White House with her by making a commitment to reduce 1.5 trillion calories from 35% of the food sold in the United States. Five years later, we actually fulfilled our commitment in advance and we beat it by 400% because we removed 6.4 trillion calories from the food sold in the United States. Once again, a wonderful story to demonstrate that if you bring industry to the table and you work around a societal need, you can make great changes of a number of people. And in fact, this was recognized uh, by folks at the, the National Academy of Sciences who recognized that due to the changes in the products, they were actually able to track changes in obesity in particular underserved communities. And that's because we changed and reduced calories in every product sold by these 16 food and beverage companies, except one product. It was a massive change in the consumer palette. And it really brought forward things that now we don't even think about. I mean, think about it today. You can have ice cream that actually is fairly reduced in calories. That was a new thing. It was brought about through competition. We told everybody, we want you to compete on calories. And what happens is it's kind of like when you put Michael Phelps in a swimming pool next to a bunch of fierce competitors. Everybody breaks records because competition works.
So as a result of that particular project, then I was called by another organization and it's the one I am so proud to be leading today. Called FAIR. We are the largest NGO focused on food allergy research and education and advocacy. We're the largest private funder of research in the world for food allergies and intolerances. It's a big issue. 85 million Americans avoid buying food with the top nine proteins that can trigger an allergic reaction. And that is one in four Americans who are suffering from food allergies, life-threatening food allergies, food intolerances, or they live with people who do. It's been a rising problem since 1998. But what's exciting is there are a number of different ways we can solve this problem. Agriculture's involved. They're looking at gene editing to see if they can remove the protein that causes the allergic reaction. CPG's involved. They're reformulating products and they're coming up with new ways to use your phone in order to make sure that a food allergic family knows exactly what's in the product that they're buying. And then pharma and biotech. There's this new category of products called biologics. And what we're seeing is the first therapy that came into the marketplace, which is around peanut, is literally based on consumption of the food. And so you hear a lot about food as medicine. And in the space I am in today, FAIR is so proud to partner with corporations from around the world and research scientists as we lean in and try to figure out what's the underlying cause of the disease and how do we solve for it. So I'm so proud and so happy once again to be leading yet another turnaround, but one that's having a huge impact on uh, the health and wellness of families and especially on kids. What would be your sweetest dream? In 10 years, I believe we will change the dynamics significantly on food allergies and intolerances. We are going to have a multi-allergen therapy in market by that time. We'll have biomarkers that allow us to assess the severity of the disease and then create treatments and therapies that actually meet the specific needs of that patient. We're going to be able to prevent the disease because we'll be doing research, which is currently being funded by FAIR, working arm in arm with Northwestern University, which is around the introduction of the allergen to babies between four and six months old, early and often. If our hypothesis proves out to be valid, what you will see is new products entering the marketplace at a rapid place. There are already some products in market, which will enable families at all socioeconomic levels to ensure that they have access to those allergens to ensure that their babies don't actually get a food allergy. And the very exciting thing that we're looking at is data. We are working with disease categories across the United States, across the world, to pull together the data to understand what foods people are avoiding because they have a medical reason they need to avoid the food and what foods they're consuming to actually bolster their immune system and improve their nutritional density of their families. So with that, we could possibly have just-in-time medically tailored meals that meet the needs of patients with food allergies, intolerances, heart disease, celiac disease, diabetes, a number of different diseases as we benefit from integrating our data, all of us pulling this data together.
the innovations in the marketplace are endless. And as we look at the future, I think the future is very bright. As we started to explore new commercial and partnership opportunities, we developed several initial hypotheses we wanted to collect data on that would inform the direction and positioning for a couple new offerings. This approach is a classic example of data-driven decisioning that informs analysis and business insight. We started with both quantitative and qualitative studies with food allergic adults, teens, and parents of food allergic children. The data showed us that reducing fear and anxiety and making life easier were major choice drivers. While our study group did not say it explicitly, the critical insight was that food allergic individuals and families wanted greater control. Today, we are strategically positioning the Fair Living app to do just this, deliver greater control to subscribers. Delivering more control is now the filter from which we assess new capabilities for the app and our go-to-market efforts. The second significant insight was that parents are exhausted doing everything themselves all the time, like looking up labels and finding new safe restaurants, and that there was a lot of duplication of work happening across the FAIR community. This analysis led us to our second insight, to strategically position the FAIR marketplace around delivering greater efficiencies to food allergic individuals and families. Additionally, we heard that food allergic families and individuals wanted the marketplace to come from a source they could trust, like FAIR, rather than general public brands. As a result, the insight to deliver efficiencies and uphold trust in FAIR directly informs how we carefully curate and select products for the FAIR marketplace. It also informs our technical roadmap and our go-to-market. Simply put, it's the filter from which we make business decisions. Taking our data-driven approach a step further, we plan to collect voice of the patient data through short surveys in both the Fair Living app and the Fair Marketplace. Analysis and insight from the data will elevate food allergic voices, inform research, and drive further innovation. The last point I wanna make is that we received data this week on a product we've been considering promoting with the Fair community. The data showed us that over 70% of parents, teens, and food allergic adults would purchase a product given it reduced fear and anxiety when the users think they're having a reaction. The data also showed us that food allergic teens are about twice as likely as food allergic adults to worry about things like whether they'd be able to call for help or recognize food allergic symptoms. And that parents of food allergic teens are less worried than their children by a far margin. Insight from this research is that parents of food allergic teens may not realize how worried their children actually are about what to do when they have a reaction or even how to recognize if they're having a reaction. The takeaway here is that as we bring new commercial offerings to market and share novel discoveries, we rely heavily on data-driven decision-making approach. to think like a process engineer and what, what does it mean? You know, it's interesting. I wrote this book because I was able to take the disciplines of manufacturing that I learned from Craig Barrett and integrate them with the art of diplomacy that I learned at the White House and the Defense Department and the State Department. But the most important thing is I need people as they are going through a turnaround to think like a process engineer. 
process engineer always thinks within the context of workflows and timelines. They produce a set of deliverables that build on each other. They use things like statistical process control to see whether the process is working and if it's as efficient as possible, you know, as they're trying to solve a problem. And so when I peel back the onion on a lot of organizations, it doesn't matter if it's the government, if it's the not-for-profit sector, or if it's a business. What I see is they're headed south and they're not moving forward. And what I can tell is that their processes aren't quite right. They weren't really thinking about the variables. They weren't thinking about all that could go wrong. And the variables are a critical piece of, of what people fail to account for. Where are the different opportunities where things go off the rails? Sometimes organizations add so many factors into their success strategy that it gets really unwieldy. In most cases, they're better off streamlining and leveraging their stronger assets as opposed to operating towards perfection, which then requires identifying and using a lot of different mechanisms to reach your goal. The more complexity you add, the greater opportunity for something to go off course. When I walked into the food allergy community in 2018, we had no data that told us what the impact of food allergies were on the underserved community. And due to the amazing research of Dr. Ruchi Gupta at Northwestern University, what we've learned is that black and brown communities are at a greater risk of food allergies than white communities. And yet all the data that we had in 2018 was really on white middle-class and upper middle-class families. So one of the first things I did at FAIR is I not only diversified, we did an 89% restructure of the organization, we not only diversified our capabilities, but we diversified the backgrounds of the people that worked there. We made sure that our boards were representatives of all patient populations. But most importantly, we began to focus on access and it's access to care and access to therapies. Our goal was to elevate the voice of every single patient. We've started talking about innovation as a criteria for approval of drugs and therapies. I know that the, the FDA looks at safety and efficacy, but when we begin to analyze the underserved communities, what we discover is they don't have a lot of time flexibility. They don't have the ability to take off work because they might be making a minimum wage and they may not have a, a situation where their boss is very open to that. Unfortunately, today, the food allergy ideas that we're speaking of in order to solve for the disease may be highly complex, for different individuals. And so what FAIR is doing is we are developing a holistic plan that will ensure that we can train more black and brown doctors in the area of immunology so that they can actually uh, have a better relationship with the patients they serve. We wanna make sure that standards of care around food allergies are moved into these communities. We want partnerships that enable us to make sure that there's safe food at food banks and at food pantries. We are looking at every step of the patient's life, every step of their journey. How long does it take them to get to the hospital? How much time do they have to take off work? What systems can we put into place to ensure that an individual, no matter how much money they have, no matter where they live, have access to treatments, have access to a standard of care, have access to safe food that will ensure that their child, that they, as a patient, are half healthy and happy and can live a productive life.
thank you for the opportunity to discuss FAIR's approach to bridging the gap to access to healthcare among underserved communities, uh, specifically the Black, Brown, and Latinx uh, communities who have been disproportionately uh, cut off uh, from the healthcare resources that would help them to live their best life. Um, perhaps a few facts to help frame the challenge that FAIR as an organization is facing. Um, black children are at a 7% higher risk for food allergies compared to their counterparts. Uh, food allergy clinical trials have less than 3% black, brown, and Latinx participation, less than 3%. Uh, in, in those studies that are to be representative of solutions uh, in our healthcare system. There are four, four food banks in the U.S. that accommodate food allergies. That's out of about 100,000 food banks uh, across various uh, networks in the U.S., only four. Black children are two to three times more likely at risk to suffer fatal anaphylaxis, and 63% are more likely to have eczema as a comorbidity. And of course, we know that there are uh, multiple health issues that could be associated with food allergies, but uh, eczema stands out among the rest. But as fair, what, what does excess mean? What, what does that mean to us? I think it means a few things uh, that come in several different forms. The first is uh, being aware and educated of the problem of food allergies, its forms and dangers. Also, being able to diagnose and treat the immediate symptoms of food allergies having the knowledge to be, be able to react, having the access to affordable products and services that can alleviate the symptoms of food allergies or reactions, having access to affordable and appropriate foods, having adequate food allergy protections in public spaces, restaurants, transportation, sporting events, and other activities, having adequate representation and participation in clinical trials that will develop broad medical diagnosis, treatments, and cures. And finally, and most importantly, having a voice in how food allergy sufferers and their families can determine how to live their best life. So for FAIR, what is the solution? We believe that it requires a systems approach to being able to solve a complex challenge such as food allergies. Well, what does that mean? It, 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 we, we need to take a multi-pronged approach to access. What does this mean? It means uh, creating the right partnerships. It means addressing, creating, and advocating for the right policies, engaging deeply and meaningfully with communities, creating access to services and education, building advocacy strategies, activating the base, and engaging with government in, in new and innovative ways to ensure that there is federal and local policies that build in protections and supports for food allergy sufferers and their families. So what are the outcomes we hope to achieve? We hope to build a bridge from communities to healthcare infrastructure where it's lacking. We hope to support the creation of education opportunities. We also hope to support the creation of economic opportunities and to be able to facilitate in a meaningfully way ad adequate food security for those communities who suffer. We also would like to facilitate social engagement and the enactment of safe spaces for those food allergy uh, sufferers and their families to be able to live their fullest life. 
So what are our goals? What, what, where, where do we look to target our, uh, our focus? We hope to, to target seven cities, Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Houston, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. And the urban and peri-urban environments that surround them. We want to make sure that we connect those communities who are uh, disconnected from the allergy specialists, from the treatments, uh, products, and foods that are, are necessary for them, for them to live their fullest life. We estimate that it should be in our program, uh, it'll be about $5 million per city over a five and a half year period per city. We want to be able to invest for the long term to make sustainable change, to ensure that it's owned by the communities from within, that it's not an organization coming in and parachuting resources, having a splash and, and being able to engage with folks and then taking off. This is not a political endeavor for us. This is a, a changing a way of life uh, for those who um, do not have resources uh, to be able to live their fullest life. And, and we think that uh, that is a problem to be remedied uh, in a significant way. So very briefly, these are areas uh, where we want to engage, why FAIR is engaging uh, in, in access to healthcare, uh, and we look forward to engaging with uh, new partners and friends as we move ahead with uh, in, engaging in this ambitious endeavor. One of the things I discuss in my book is the need for partnerships. And this becomes particularly important when you're starting a new organization or you're starting a new business. You need to focus, 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 focus. This was one thing I learned from Andy Grove. We also learned that only the paranoid survive. But the one thing that Andy used to talk about is the need for focus. What is job one? Well, in order to get to job one, you can either bring the resources in-house or you can be highly effective in leveraging the relationships with other organizations. Maybe you go out and if you're in a particular category, you might actually find a not-for-profit like FAIR that can help bring your product forward uh, because we have access to a patient population that would be using your product or might be consuming your product. Or you go and you find another company who has a business that's aligned with your goals. You're all trying to get to the same place. And I saw this and experienced it firsthand when I was at Intel in the early 90s because I was part of teams where IBM, Intel, and Microsoft actually teamed up to go and visit CTOs. They each knew that they had very specific objectives. They were extremely focused companies, but they aligned their objectives. They used the power of their might together to create business opportunities for both of them. So if you're starting a new business or you're starting a new organization, be generous in your relationship, look for partnerships, create win-win scenarios so that by linking arms, everybody can make it over the finish line before their competitors. Twenty-first Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.